1: Hi everybody, welcome to Podside Picnic, Uh, once again it's me, Pete, and we're uh, with the the guy you've heard of, uh, Connor, and uh, the two of us are going to talk to you today about one of my favorite books, which is Walter John Williams' Voice of the Whirlwind. I got to confess, I'm actually a little nervous here, because this is one of my favorite books of all time. I've loved it since I was 17. And like, when you love a book from when you were 17, what if it doesn't hold up anymore? So like, here's where I find out whether Connor um, attacks it with a knife or finds it charming. So uh, how's it going, Connor?
0: Hey, man. um, First of all, I want to put your mind at ease. I... Did enjoy this book quite a bit, and I have a lot of things to say about it. I also want to say that because this book is one of the most profound influences on you, not just as a reader and a critic, but also as a person. There's no way that I could like it. Well, not no way. It. it was unlikely that I was going to like it as much as you do, and I, I would say that I don't. But that that is nothing to take not to take anything away from this book, which I found to be extremely interesting. And I think this is well. Uh, I think this is a good lead in to having you describe what it's about and how it fits in, which is what I'm going to bounce over to you in a second to tell us how this fits into the broader scene and and what it's really about. But I just want to say this book came out in 1987. And I believe, based on what I can glean, I think it is now out of print from commercial publishers because the the edition that I got from Amazon is pretty obviously a nicely done, but it's a print on demand, I believe. And I think it, it looks like. Walter John Williams, who is very much still alive, it he, he seems to have gotten sort of the copyright to it and uh, put it out under his own name as print on demand, which means that the original publisher is no longer doing it. As far as I can tell, if someone else can someone can prove me wrong about this, please, I'd welcome being pr- proven wrong because I feel bad about this. And the reason I feel bad about it is not only is this a good book, it's also, I mean, we've talked a lot. This show began talking about cyberpunk and it's a word that keeps coming up it's a word that has stayed very relevant um it's been popping up in my timeline on twitter a lot there's been some discussion around uh its origins and 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 uh, cyberpunk has also been canceled by the way folks r.i.p but um <laughs> it, it's you know we started with neuromancer which is considered the founding cyberpunk text, and neuromancer and blade runner are kind of the two originary um uh, narratives that brought cyberpunk into being, and, and now, as we know, c- cyberpunk broadly speaking is a whole continent within the culture. Was the the analogy that we used? Um, and this book came out in eighty seven, only a few years after Neuromancer and Blade Runner, uh, and it it is firmly a therefore a very early cyberpunk novel. And I, I think that to talking talking about why it's unfortunate that it's out of print. Um, it very clearly inspired some much bigger, better known things that came later. Um, Very, very closely inspired them. And so many things are very derivative, maybe even to the point of being ripped off a bit from this book by Walter John Williams um, that have gotten way more credit and way more money than this currently out of print novel. And I think that's a real shame that says a lot about the, the twists and turns and vicissitudes of being a genre writer. But before we get into that, Pete, like, what is this book about and how does it fit into the history of sci-fi? Sure. Okay. Uh, what,
1: two things I want to say leading into that. The first is Connor and I, before starting this episode, are we're trying a new policy. Uh, we're going to try hard not to spoil the book as we go. Because both of us are of the opinion that we want you to read the book. We think less of you have probably read this one in advance. And we're hoping this will give enough of, of a push for people to, uh, to check it out and enjoy it. And maybe pick it up later. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is like Connor says he doesn't like, he, he's unlikely to like the book as much as me. Bear in mind, I have a passage from the book tattooed on my leg. It's not actually possible for someone to like this book more than me, and I realize I'm a little insane about it. And you just kind of you kind of have to work with that. Anything I say about this, dial it down about ten percent. You're probably going to get something more accurate. Okay. So this book is, um, I would say, well, like most my like most cyberpunk books, it has an element of noir in it. You're dealing with a character who wakes up in a hospital. And he is a clone. And be, he begins to piece together through the help of the, the doctor that he's going through therapy with that his his previous self, his alpha, had his memories recorded and stuff long befo- before a series of events happened which were traumatic and important in his life. And then the, his alpha, which is what you call the original person, was killed. And so this... Uh, this individual basically ends up tracking down and trying to solve his own murder. And as he does this, he gets drawn deeper and deeper into a lot of corporate espina- espionage. There's uh Man, it goes all over the place. Uh, you can think of this guy as like a Zen warrior techno monk. Like, a, like there's a very serious Zen undertone to his outlook and where he's going. In fact, one of the things... It, it, it's almost like he doesn't in resolve his life as particularly important. He's trying to clear the deck for all past hymns and all future hymns to move ahead. And, um, now I just feel like I'm just going too deeply in the book, but it's got martial arts, it's got drugs, it's got, uh, what, what do you want? Aliens uh, insanely evil corporations. It's all here. It's a very rich, complicated plot and it moves at a clip.
0: Yeah. So you hit on a lot of great things there. Things I want to stress would be not only are there martial arts in the book, but like, this is a character who's constantly doing martial arts workouts in great detail to stay fit and to stay focused. Um, and I feel like we get a lot, we're get we probably seeing a lot of the author in that because Walter John Williams himself is this really interesting guy who's like a scuba diver, mountain climber, a martial artist. He's kind of a latter-day, less pompous Arthur C. Clarke in that way. Is that a fair statement?
1: Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's like he, he's, he goes out and he's an adventurer and he does stuff with the world, but like he's not smug about it. You know what I mean? He's just He just happens to be a guy who likes going out and scuba diving or whatever.
0: Right. So you see a lot of that in this character. You also get the older noir influences. The things that make you feel how old this book is, it's more than 30 years old at this point, are like the character is constant, like so much caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol, like just this constant regimen of, of substances in like – a way that we've moved away from culturally, but uh, a lot of it is about, like, despite being a Zen monk, it's hard for him to quit smoking because he has to for one of his jobs and, like, stuff like that. <laughs> so, um, one thing I want to bring up with you, did a great job describing the book, a question to put it in a historical context. I feel like now, in 2019, if I tell somebody, oh, so I'm writing a book and you know, the character is like a Zen warrior. He's got like samurai ninja influences, but it goes into space. People are going to be like, uh, rolling their eyes. And because the, these are like things that we intermix so much now, would you say that 87, that felt like way fresher and possibly totally original?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a great way to look at it. If, if you think about the, what was going on culturally in 1987, probably people's closest touch point to what martial arts were was, oh God, what, the Karate Kid? Like it wasn't absorbed into the culture to the same level it is is right now. And the fact that he was pretty specific about the types of martial arts that were happening and, you know, the, the type of Zen Buddhism and that sort of thing, it's like, uh, he he was probably one of the few writers playing around with this stuff that had any idea what he was talking about.
0: Right, and... um. Oh gosh, I kind of lost my train of thought a little bit. Uh, Oh, Oh, note I wanted to ask you. So, when did you first read this book, and why did it have such a big impact on you?
1: Okay, yep, that's a fair question. I um, I I was aware of uh, of our uh, Walter John Williams for a while. So, like, I had read. Oh, heck. I, I had read some of his previous works like Night Moves or uh, Hardwired, which is a, a book we may do an episode on someday. But I, I was basically, when I heard Voice of the World when come, came, was going to come out, I pretty much camped out of the bookstore waiting for it to come. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I probably, I probably got it within two or three days of its release, which is incredibly unusual for me as a 17 year old, because I almost got everything free at the library because duh, I was 17. But, uh, um, yeah, like, uh, it, it was, it was warm off the press when I first read it. And, um, I probably read it like five times that summer. It, it really... Uh, like, I was into it. Like, I was fascinated by Zen Buddhism. I was fascinated by martial arts. Of course I love cyberpunk. And it's just like, it's like uh, William sat down and said, okay, I need a checklist that's going to make this random kid in Indiana obsessed with my writing. What am I going to do? And, and, and this is what he came up with. It really hit
0: the target. And looking back on it, you know, 32 years later, uh, why? Why do you think this book in particular resonated with you so much?
1: Well, um, I think, well, I mean, we've, we've talked in the past, uh, certainly uh, like when I was talking about the, the David Gerald stuff, is that I, I developed my identity and how I viewed the world through a number of books that were absolutely not designed for that purpose. And uh, I would say this book fit into that. Because you, it was a it was a book to me about responsibility, and it was a book about uh, meeting your commitments, and it was a it was a book about uh, taking on uh, larger challenges, even if they knew they were going to screw you up. Like I mean, Seward in this book, basically, he stuck his head in the grinder trying to make things better, and I. Uh, I was pretty awed by that. You know, the idea that someone pr- would presume, pursue his goals and what he thought was right, like beyond the grave, which is essentially what's happening here, was really eye opening to me. And um, I, I, uh, I, I hate, like, I certainly can't say I got my morality from this book, but it reinforced a lot of things I was interested in and I was thinking about. And, you know, the martial arts thing, like, uh, when I got done with this, I was, I was, uh, I started checking out studios and uh, I'm, I'm just not the athlete to do that sort of thing. But I did immediately after this start collecting books and reading about Buddhism. I became more and more fascinated with it, actually started calling myself a Buddhist, something I cringe about to these days because you can't read your way into religion. But uh, uh, like, I, I, I had a shelf of books by the end of 1988 all about Buddhism, and it was just because This book connected with me, and I was trying to find where that connection was from.
0: That's a great answer. So the Buddhism was very interesting, but also this was ultimately about resiliency and perseverance for you as a teenager, which, like, I can testify around the same age, just to go on a tangent a little bit, like – I was, when I was 15 or so, I was not influenced. That was the period of my life when I was least influenced by books probably because I wasn't reading much outside of class, but I discovered, um, distance running. And after, after having been a kid who was decently athletic, but hated doing like the mile test in gym and really hated the pain of cardio for most of my young life, I turned, I turned into a distance runner, a competitive distance runner, and I was pretty good at it at age 15, um, or honestly, for my age, for somebody who had never done it before at that age, I was actually quite good at it. And if I'd pursued it more seriously, my life might be different. But um, anyway, I discovered kind of the magic of it, of sort of going through the pain and emerging on the other side and all these things that that endurance athletes love to talk about. Uh, and I won't go so far to say that it saved my life, but it did sort of change my life. It certainly provided an unparalleled outlet for my immense youthful angst and taught me how to manage living with myself in the world in a whole new way that's still very important to me. And so it seems like my process of discovering running which was very much a tangible physical thing was like you discovering something that something filtered through narrative which was sort of the the ethos and the way of being of this Zen warrior character, which was not physically intangible for you, but had a similar effect. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... uh Like as I say this sort of thing, I feel a little bit sheepish because, like, on one level, I like it's you never truly know the mind of the author, but I find it hard to believe that he was trying to set up a guide to life in any way. I mean, this just simply wasn't that sort of book. But it it, it's a very grounded book. Like the 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 main character has this uh, dark. I, I I don't know what you call it, Manachian. The he's he's got he's got this black and white morality that drives him forward. That ultimately I don't think was is very healthy, but it was incredibly appealing to seventeen year old me. It, it 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 connected me on a level that most of the things I read did not. You know that that black and white. Maybe it was the noir. Um, Actually, I have a question for you, and it's sort of off the path of what we've been talking about, Connor. So the interesting thing about this episode to me is like, you know, we're we're talking about a book that was formative to me in this time. Like, so it, you're 17 years old. What book are you carrying? Like, what,
0: what was resonating with you at this point? At exactly 17, that's an interesting one, because that was around the age when... I emerged from my non-reading cocoon of ages like 11 to roughly 16 or 17, where tragically in that period, I read very little. Uh, and one day we'll get more into some of the few books that I did read. Actually, our upcoming themed months are based on some of the authors that I did read in that, in that span, such as uh, Frank Herbert and H.P. Lovecraft. But mostly that was a, a desert for me as a reader. I, I read what I had to for class. Uh, and despite being a good writer and being interested in it, I-, I was just not reading. it. was It's a very strange choice to make, and I guess it was my version of, t- of Rebellion because I grew up in a house that had literally 2,000 books at least, most of which were novels. Um, I mean, my parents are both hyper-literate uh, people and all of that. But okay, so 17. Um, that was the age when I finally, I was starting to read things like uh, Slaughterhouse Five, uh, Slaughterhouse Five, which is, of course, a classic, sure. teen boy, book. Um, and I was also reading some things that would be that would count as more. Adult literature from the 20th century canon, uh, I remember reading Rabbit Run by John Updike, which is a weird book to read as a 17-year-old, but- mid- I was going to say. Yeah, I, I came across it at the library. I, I had this newfound interest in literature, capital L. This is the beginning of my real snobbiness, Pete. Um, my snobbery that to this day, I, you know, that this podcast is meant to reckon with in certain ways. Uh, I was also I remember at that age really liking Atonement by Ian McEwan, which is unlike his other novels, and I actually really don't really don't like Ian McEwen as a novelist. But Atonement blew me away at that age. That's a good good age to read that kind of melodramatic uh, tragic love story. I don't know if uh, some of our listeners will surely have read Atonement, but uh, anyway, I, nothing nothing had the impact on me that that this was having on you. Not even close. The only th- I'd say the thing that has stuck with me the most from my teen years that the the writing that stuck with me the most is that of Howard Phillips Lovecraft, who we will be discussing in great length on this pod eventually, folks. I promise you. Um, no. but I don't have I don't have as, as tight or as charming an answer as you with this book, which is why I think it's which is why I'm so interested in it. Um, oh, fair enough. It, yeah, and I want to ask you a little bit. Um, sure. What? Well, the, that makes into a coherent question. I already discoursed a little bit here about uh, how I think this book has been ripped off. I mean,
1: well, go well, ahead. Like, I was going to say, well, I honestly, I think let's let's explore that. I I, um, I know that you have really specific thoughts on the influence this book has had on other work. Do you want to give some examples and talk through that? Because I certainly agree with you.
0: So the book that I think for legal purposes should literally have. Like a paragraph in its acknowledgments about uh, Voice of the Whirlwind is Altered Carbon by Richard K. Morgan. Because there are so many things, uh, from the sort of like extra stellar polycorp structure of these like space fairy corporations that become their own nation states, to the idea of like ensuring yourself by putting a backup version of your consciousness that can be cloned and respawned. Um to the overall, like the type of noir and the way the character is being manipulated, uh, down to even just the—I mean, again—and I'd say that the laconic stoic personality of someone like Stewart is does not originate in this kind of story, certainly. But like, man. Sure. I read Altered Carbon a while ago. We'll probably eventually discuss it on the show. And it, it became huge. It was a huge hit in the early 2000s. It's a book. And of course, it, it has recently become a pretty successful TV series, I believe, on Netflix. Somewhere like Netflix. Hulu, one of those. Yeah, it's Netflix. Netflix, yeah. Uh, and you know what? Good for Richard K. Morgan. But um, boy, I, I really think Walter John Williams should be the one getting a Netflix TV series.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I find that really hard to argue with. Like... Uh, He's just uh, – I'm trying to look for a word besides accessible because I've read Altered Carbon too and I feel like they cover a lot of the same ground and there's a lot of very similar ideas and structures to the book. But I just found Voice of the World went more readable. I found Stewart a more interesting character, which is fascinating because, like a more affectless guy, you would have to search a long time to find.
0: Yeah, I, I, I would ask you about that a little bit because I'm not sure that I find now hard to get into that going into spoilers, but I'm not sure that I find Stewart quite as compelling as you. I do agree that he's an interesting model of, uh, of resiliency of certain kinds and of kind of very decisive moral decision making. Although I think there's there's arguably. I think the book gets complicated just because he's always referring back to his like Zen koans. There's this one lengthy poem that is probably based at least on real Zen poetry um, that the title comes from about like becoming the whirlwind or, or I don't know if we're told that Seward wrote that or if he was told that in training or like anyway. It was from his training. Yeah, it's from his training. He keeps referring back to, he's always like going for this sort of, he's always using these Zen methods to sort of empty his mind uh, to make him a more effective fighter, and one might argue that like that is an opposition or, or provides a not a contradiction, but a help, but an interesting contrast with the kind of attachments that this character does in fact form and honor. And I'm not saying that's not that's not a, that's not a flaw in the book. It's just an interesting.
1: Oh, uh, I no, I think you're dead on, and I think I think the book actually speaks to that. I mean, they, they call him a moral zombie. You know, the, you've got that Dr. Ashraf at the beginning who's trying to jar him out of that. It's like, look, all of that Zen stuff, you were programmed to be a more, uh, an amoral killing machine. That's what all that crap is. And uh, I, I mean, I think the main character decides, okay, for the purposes of what I'm going to do, I'm going to be an amoral killing machine in this incarnation of myself. And is that a great choice? I don't know, but it's a strange one and it caught my attention.
0: Yeah, I think that's very eloquently said. And I think that there is, um, that's where there's a degree, like there is certainly some thematic complexity here. And and I think this gets into something else that's really important about this book and lets us jump off into topics of ongoing broad relevance to this show. Um, Mm -hmm. That being the nature of pulp. Because, yes. yeah, like like a large majority of science fiction that's ever been published, you could call this book pulpy. And look, we've used that phrase a lot in the show. We've used it probably imprecisely a lot, at least I have. Um, Pete has talked helpfully about the actual history of pulp, which literally refers to cheaply made and cheaply written books that could be pulped. It was just, you know, it was trash uh, in a very literal sense. And... Uh, we've also used other terms like schlock, and, like, there's a lot of just looseness of definitions here, and I'm not going to, at this moment, try to give, like, my sort of aesthetician's theoretical model of what pulp means, but I do think this book lets us talk about it because, again, it's it's a case of, like, a lot of good genre fiction, interesting thematic complexity that stacks up perfectly well with uh, fiction that that wears a cloak of greater seriousness or whatever, but the uh, the way the story plays out, the the writing at the sentence and chapter level, um, and the tools that are used to sort of engage our attention, all of these things bear the hallmarks of genre fiction and of, of pulp, what we call pulp. And uh, I've spent a lot of time working through, like, what are the uses uh, of pulp? And I think, actually, Pete, you've given me an interesting entree into going somewhere with that because you've talked about how you were able to take this and translate it into what I think are some pretty useful uh, moral lessons. Um, I think that's, I'm going ha- to fasten on to that because I do think it's, it's important. Um, and we might say at this level that pulp, if pulp refers to a set of aesthetic conventions that can be used to draw in readers, use the word accessibility, that can create an accessible space, a pull for a broad group of readers and that can then inaugurate them into whatever the book is doing that is potentially more interesting. That's probably in some ways the best justification for pulp. And what does pulp mean at a very precise level? It means like the presence of sex scenes that are, that are meant to be, uh, sort of titillating in a way that is, um, unrealistic and is at least adjacent to erotica and pornography. It's like, it's just, it, it's sex appeal for the sake of sex appeal. And you can say that it's bringing you into something more interesting, but it's there to hold your attention in a certain way, right? Is that am I am I going down a path here? That what do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's ketchup on the hamburger.
1: I mean, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. Like the uh, pulp pulp is a style and manner of writing that is designed to be accessible and fun, and I think. One of the problems we run into when talking about this is it is the vast majority of pulp is also bad. Yeah, and
0: in fact, pulp and, is used as a pejorative term, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I mean, I, I think a lot of things that a lot of authors we've talked about over, gosh, the months now have been – writers who have used some of the pulp convention or used some of the pulp tricks of the trade but are actually decent writers like uh, as a, I'm just I'll, I'm gonna go down the rabbit hole a little bit because one of the things I love about Walter John Williams is his range like in the early 80s he started out writing like uh, 18th century age of sale adventure novels and then he wrote, uh, RPG manuals, and um, he's written military science fiction. He's written almost a Molière-style comedy of manners uh, called the Magistral series. Uh, he's written Star Wars novels. He's written like disaster fiction. Uh, he's even he he worked on uh, that Wildcard series I was talking to you about the, with George R. R. Martin. I mean, he is. Uh, like, different people will have different mileage about whether a particular author is good or not. And I'm, I'm never going to make that decision for another person. But what I will say about Walter John Williams is, dude has range. Like, he goes all across the conventions of science fiction and beyond, and... I find that very interesting and it gives me an opportunity to see like his points and his worldview across a range of Zandra's. And one of the things he does very well is play with pulp. And I think that's important because I think pulp is relatable.
0: Yeah. And that's a very eloquent uh, set of points. And you know, obviously the, the copy of this book that I'm holding in my hand right now, it is, has been literally deemed pulp. It's gone out of print and I've been given a, not the most cheaply done print-on-demand book I've ever seen. There is actually some arranging of blurbs and stuff on it, but it's like, all right, this is pulp that has been unpulped and turned into a print-on-demand copy of this book that I would say has not gotten its cultural due fully because there are things that are such close inheritors that have done so much better. But um, yes to all of that. And I mean, again, some of our... um, more argumentative listeners might listen to what I just said and be like, are you guys just keep going around in circles talking about pulp? And how do you even separate pulp from genre fiction as concepts? Like, what are you even talking about? And I would say great question. Yeah. And if, if I thought that there were a clear way to settle any of this, um, I would give it to you. I do think that we're, we're sort of trapped in a, well, trapped is the wrong word. We're in a cultural moment where since world war two, Um, so many of the broader critical and aesthetic debates around literature and every other art form has been like, is there some method, uh, or set of methods that we can sort of solidify and use to structure our aesthetic priorities? Or are we in, um, are we lost in a more chaotic, uh, more fluid, more boundaryless uh, post structural and of course people recognize that I'm using structuralism and, and post structuralism which are broad traditions of thought uh, are we in that you know more um, more paradoxical and contradictory and impossible to sort of build firm structures within within uh, realm and I don't have a great answer I think that 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 I, I'm, I'm saying those these making these very broad statements because uh, i think we'll be we'll, we'll be having an ongoing series of discussions about this and of course we're going to have people on or even if it's just me we're going to be talking about uh, major critics and theorists so we can hear people's different perspectives on how all this goes down but to zoom zoom to get a little bit less high minded and just say like when we use terms like pulp and genre fiction and we see, and, and if you feel yourself being frustrated by the slipperiness of these terms, or how often they're being used, rest assured that Pete and I are frustrated by it too. I think yes. this podcast is partly an exploration <laughs> of how terms like science fiction and, and genre categories, and all the tools we have available to us, they're never quite adequate. And you know, if we did this long enough with enough seriousness, we might come up with our own set of terms that'll be more satisfying. Maybe we will. I don't know. But it, the point is that like we're frustrated by the inadequacy of these terms too. And in the case of a book like Voice of the Whirlwind, I, I do actually wish that I had more to say in certain ways because I do think the sort of the superficial layer of pulp that it, that it has to it aesthetically is, is key. I think Pete is doing a better job than I am of talking about the deeper thematic resonance. And I think those are two very important elements of it that exist side by side and not necessarily and neither in perfect harmony nor in opposition. Um, but before I fly off into the ether again, I want to ask Pete, you talked, a little, you talked about sure. what this book means to you. Um, I think you posited when we were talking about this before recording that you do see it as having a unified message, which is always a loaded claim when it comes to any work of art. But, I mean, you see it that way. And what would you say about that?
1: Well, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, mean, I want to be careful because I, I don't uh, – one of the things that you have been very good about in our dialogue is saying that the, the book should speak for itself. So like the safest answer I can give, and I'll give, I'll give a less safe one, but the safest one is people should read the book. I mean, it's not, um, it's not a book that hides. Uh, that being said, this book, uh, explores cyberpunk in a direction that is, is, uh, what would you call it? Uh, it perverts the genre. It, uh, Undercuts it? Subverts, uh, there's I think. But gotta...
0: perverts is good, too. Thank you.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, so when we talk about Neuromancer or when we talk about uh, like any of the other uh, uh, cyberpunk uh, novels, what we're talking about is a, a, a universe grounded in a lack of morality. And in that universe, the best you could do— is uh, is uh, carve out a little corner for yourself to achieve your own personal safety. The idea of like trying to change the world for the better or make things for a be- a better place is is fundamentally the action of a fool. It's a it's a way to die in cyberpunk. Uh, Williams in this book said. Well, what if you die and still get what you want? You can change the world if you're willing to pay the price. And that is, it's an incredibly powerful message, and it's very subversive to cyberpunk, in my opinion. And that's one of the things, like, altered carbon flirts with that. It doesn't quite go there, but it flirts with it. And that's part of its power. And that's, that's one of the things that really makes this book connect to me is that underlying message. And it's just out there. He doesn't make a big deal about it, but it's an attack on cyberpunk, in my opinion.
0: Very interesting. I did not know that you were going to go that direction with it. So you're saying that this is, in fact, one of the earliest uh, still significant examples of cyberpunk. And you think it's already putting under attack the ethos that we see in Neuromancer.
1: Yes, that's what I'm saying. Um, And maybe you could say it's evolving what people perceive as cyberpunk. Like, we're always in a situation where we're playing games with definitions, right? But, I mean, certainly there was an existing understanding of what cyberpunk was, and it was absolutely amoral. And this book, in the guise of amorality, is actually an argument for morality, in my opinion.
0: Well, I'm going to... Without spoiling, because I could go the spoiler out here, it might get even more interesting, but I'll spare our listeners that. But um, (laughs) I might challenge you a little bit, because I think that what you said is very interesting. Um, That this is a rejection of the amoral, I got mine ethos of cyberpunk. And I think that's actually fairly persuasive on a lot of levels. I will say that there are certain things in there which mark it out to me as a book that definitely belongs to the Reagan era and the advent of neoliberalism, like there is a certain, um, to be frank, a certain, both a disdain for the hoi polloi at times and also a, um, a sense that impersonal market forces are a inevitable and a, in some ways, morally just mirror of sort of, well, they are just sort of like inevitable and they are morally just in, in or at least they are. Uh, natural in the, in the literal sense that when things are going when things are going badly for like one of the settlements they go to or any any of the groups they encounter, um, the the narration says "Darwin days." That's a recurring phrase. Darwin days, survival of the yes. fittest, and and to me those are those are components of the kind of thought that was very predominant. In the 80s and was was accepted a, widely across the political spectrum. And that now, 32 years later, we say, well, actually that discourse can be very harmful or is broadly harmful because it says that like if you're a loser in the marketplace, uh, maybe you didn't necessarily deserve it, but it's just what happens. And we, we reject that a lot now. Increasingly more of us reject it, which I think is is good. But I mean I'm not I'm not accusing Walter John Williams of even holding that ethos. I'm just saying it's in the text, kind of indisputably.
1: Oh, sure. Absolutely it's in the text. I <sighs> Yeah, and you're right. It's it's very easy to wander up to to spoilers in this discussion, and I'm trying not to too. So what what I what I will say is that um, uh, the 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 individual that we deal with f- throughout the book um, is uh, he does a number of things that theoretically lead to personal success, but. Only as a means to an end. And like... The, his his price for doing all that is very high. I mean, he pays the ultimate
0: price. Right. Well, I mean, you, you nailed it. Like, the character is constantly getting rich almost by accident. Uh, he doesn't intend to. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be rich for his own sake, and then he's giving his money away it's, for various reasons.
1: It's very role-playing game in that sense. Like, I like I I, I sort of get the feeling, actually, if I look at the timeline, and I'm almost certain it's true that, that uh, Walter John Williams was actually riding role-playing games like during or before this time and like you could almost feel Seward leveling up as he gathers stuff right
0: that's a great point and and one day maybe with Trev or, or who, who knows who else we're gonna have to talk about the relationship between games and novels because I find that deeply fascinating but yeah I mean the, I agree that there is a general a feeling of like accumu- the accumulation in this book feels like accumulation in a game because he's only gonna use the wealth that he accrues uh, to do very immediately effectual things in the game, he's not like planning the house he's going to live in 20 twenty twenty years from now. This is not a guy that expects to be living in a house twenty years from now, right? Yeah, possibly in half an hour. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it's all more. You can't reduce it. I, I would never try to do an aha with this book where it's like aha, you're actually a Reaganite. It's just that it's produced. Right. It's produced in a cultural setting where. It was very hard to dodge that kind of thinking. Whereas now you would see so much polemic ri- polemical writing in a novel like this, where it's like, it, it's, well, I mean, again, he talks about the stock market in a way that is maybe not laudatory, but it's very neutral. Like there's a certain faith in the stock market that this character is, is the character like actually creates a trust at one point, And he's like trying to savvily invest. And he's like, well, I've, we've spread it out in a way where like it'll always be safe, no matter how many of these corporations collapse or whatever. Which, like, all right, he's basically got a space index fund, which, uh, Folks, if you are, <laughs> that's true, right? I mean, it's like yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like, and
1: it's very spirit of the times. I absolutely agree with you. And there is there is a faith in the overall structure of the financial system that at this point in American history does seem a little bit crazy.
0: Well, but like. I, I didn't see it either in 1987, though, you know? Right. Well, I mean, in, in 87, like, it, you could argue that in a sense neoliberalism was still working because a certain kind of blue-collar worker was definitely getting hosed. But um, I think that would be – you know, 80s, 90s, one of the defining traits would be that there was a – arguably probably a growing attention of white-collar workers who were having more opportunities to invest more, were being offered things like stock options – Um, there was a, a, there was a wider range of opportunities for participation in a a rapidly growing set of financial markets, uh, for a lot of white collar workers and their wages hadn't flatlined yet. Um, and so, yeah, like there was a whole culture of like, suddenly people were thinking about investments, whereas previously they'd been thinking about, you know, maybe owning land and then maybe having a pension, but it was like, now, no, we have to be smart investors. And this was the, this era was the beginning of that arguably, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, and that's like the dawn of the four hundred and one k as the dominant vehicle. They're like, look, look at these private investment systems you can do, and look at the rate of return they've had over this period of years. You'd be crazy not to do this. And on an unrelated note, we're taking away your pension.
0: Right, right, yeah, exactly. Uh, you won't need your pension anymore. Oh. Why would you need a pension? We're gonna, you're gonna invest, <laughs> and it's gonna be great. Everything be great forever. Your house will go up in value. Just watch. Um, yeah and, and so like now, if you were writing with a similar like if you if you're combining the ethos of like uh, of fear you know suspicion and disdain for these big corporations in 2019, which a lot of science fiction writers obviously are, uh you then wouldn't turn around and have a protagonist who's also a savvy investor and that's sort of presented in a neutral way. That's just that's just the, mm-hmm. the changes we've gone through, and I'm probably harping too much on it. Cause it's not the it's not the biggest part of this story by any means. Um, no, but I mean
1: it. It it caught your eye, and it certainly related to what we talked to. I think that makes perfect sense,
0: right? Uh, and and I think what is sort of enduring from this novel and doesn't doesn't stand out as much of a product as a product of its time is that um, this novel. I'll repeat what I said earlier. It probably deserves a lot of credit that it isn't getting for helping to transpose the whole Zen warrior ethos, uh, into a variety of settings and bring that into the consciousness. And it's now, that's now one of the dominant tropes, right? Like, um, not just altered carbon, but things like the matrix, all of the, all of the big cyberpunk, like cyberpunk has become so pervasive. And I think this, this brings in some key pieces of cyberpunk. I'm not, not that Neuromancer was in Blade Runner. were totally lacking in, in all of these pieces, but I don't think that any of them had like an outright... Uh, Zen monk warrior in quite the same way, if, if I'm recalling correctly. Uh, and Walter John Williams, as far as Pete and I can tell, folks probably deserves a tremendous amount of credit for that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, like I I can't speak for Connor. But uh, my my share of the vote of future events in this podcast is that sometime in the future I would like to uh, revisit Walter John Williams in one of his other books. certainly since he has range it would be it would be fun to do something different as well like uh, uh, he quilifer came out last year which is sort of a uh, an alternate earth 1800s. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't even know how to describe it the, at this point, which might be the best argument for it. But my point is, uh, he's got a wide catalog, and I think it'd be fun to do something else at some future point.
0: Yeah, no, I I am totally down for more wealth of John Williams. Probably because I think he's a fascinating guy. Um, oh, yeah. and uh, Yeah, so, Mr. Williams, if you are listening, go on Podside. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to have you on. Seriously, I think, I think you'd get along uh, well with us. <laughs> um, and... I think that's probably a good place to call it. What do you think, Pete? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Uh, Read Voice of the Whirlwind. And we have some fun stuff coming up, both free and we have some fun stuff on Patreon. If you're not a Patreon subscriber yet, patreon.com slash podside picnic will be your best friends, quite literally, in the Discord chat. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Absolutely. Take care, guys.